a holly, jolly, polarizing Christmas. Title of our sermon today, as you see in your notes. Now, it wasn't my intent to ruin your favorite Christmas song today, but I doubt it's anyone's favorite Christmas song. There's so many good ones. It is a great catchy song, don't get me wrong. And it's in a lot of really good Christmas movies. I love the song. But polarizing is not a word that you would expect to be associated with such a lighthearted, frothy, fun, loving song such as this, would you? And Christmas, though, it is joyful, and it's hands down, in my estimation, the best holiday that there is. Those are some great ones. I love Christmas. Really, it's more polarizing than you might have considered at face value. Now, Santa Claus, Christmas trees, ornaments, and gift giving isn't offensive or really polarizing at all, right? Just fun traditions that's typically not going to ruffle anyone's feathers, right? However, when we consider the stakes that are involved And what we know as Christians is the real significance of Christmas. We enter a realm of heavy and eternally consequential things, don't we? When we consider that Christmas and the birth of Jesus this season, we realize that there's a lot more going on than twinkly lights and eggnog at your company Christmas party. We're dealing with the spiritual realm of good and evil, light and darkness, those who are perishing and on their way to hell, and those who are being saved. When we consider the meaning of Christmas and what this holiday is all about, we know it's about Jesus. And Jesus, you see, unlike Santa Claus, causes a wide range of responses from people. This was true when he was born, and when he grew up, and it's true today. In fact, you know it firsthand if you're a believer here this morning, because you were once an enemy of God, and opposed to his plan of salvation, pursuing your own desires, weren't you? But then one day, when your eyes were opened, all of a sudden, when your affections towards the gospel and this whole Christmas thing was changed, you suddenly were drawn to Christ and loved everything about who he was and who he is in your life, but you didn't before. So it's no surprise, is it, when we look around at so many people opposed to the true meaning of Christmas today, opposed or ignorant or nonchalant or careless about the season. Not a surprise. When you talk to your coworker who maybe mocks Christianity or try to discuss the Christmas message or the gospel with your family members and they give you the stiff arm, or when you listen to the opinions of our secular culture and celebrities getting up at these grand events and saying all these things, it completely goes against everything about Christmas and Christianity and the gospel. We realize that there's more at stake And Christmas even hits a nerve with some people because 
There's eternal things going on here that go beyond the mere pleasantries of the season. So for that reason, I want us to move beyond the lighthearted nature of things a bit, even starting here this morning as we consider this particular passage, and and consider the weightier things of Christmas together, and to see why Christmas is at the same time the greatest joy and happiness for some, and even the utter disgust and hatred of others. Well, this brings us to our text this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3 and verse 16, and we will read through verse 21. This is, of course, the most famous passage of the Bible in John 3.16. We know that one by heart. Probably over 90% of you know that one by heart. Maybe even more. Probably even more. Followed then by some other less familiar verses in 17 through 21. That's what we're going to look at. And and though this is not usually associated with the Christmas passage or Christmas Bible text, we will consider it today in light of the Christmas season that we find ourselves in. We're going to first look this morning at the reason for Christmas. Then we're going to look at the offense of Christmas. And then lastly, we're going to look at the result of Christmas. So, John 3.16, hopefully you're there now. John 3.16, we'll read through verse 21. This is the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So number one, we're going to look at the reason for Christmas together from this text in verses 16 through 18. But before we look at the famous passage of John 3, 16 through 18, let's look at John chapter 3 a little bit in context. And Scott read as he read in our scripture reading, so we're already a little bit familiar with, with what's going on here in John chapter 3. This is that Famous passage even before our most famous passage here. It's all together. It's all the similar passage here. And where Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, meets with Jesus by night. Nicodemus saw Jesus as this rather gifted teacher and wanted to have a conversation with him. 
And Jesus, remember this, as we read earlier this morning, reveals the necessity of the new birth to him, the being born again. Remember that you must be born again. That's a famous one too. He tells Nicodemus this. No one could enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again, right? This is right before our passage in John 3, 16. And then even right, you know, right before our passage in, 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 in verses 14 through 15, Jesus gives a illustration of the gospel for us. We're going to be looking at that. And it's actually probably one of the best illustrations of the gospel. And it's definitely one of the most oddly memorable illustrations of the gospel, right? As he references this Old Testament story recorded in the book of Numbers about the people of God being bitten by a venomous snake or many venomous snakes and in the process dying as a result. That's right before John 3, 16, in case you didn't realize that. It's a rather grisly picture. So let's, let's look, look with me in your Bibles at verse 14 first. Then we're going to look at numbers together to see the story. But in verse 14, we read, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal Life, And then we go into John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? We know that one. So let's look at Numbers chapter 21. Everyone turn in your Bibles over in the Old Testament to Numbers. I mean, um, yes, to, to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. When everyone gets there, you can raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. No, don't do that. Just turn to Numbers 21 and read along with me. And verse 4. From Mount they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're complaining, right? They're a bunch of complainers. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. As one preacher said, this is like a scene out of Indiana Jones in the temple of doom. (laughs) Craziness. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who was bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And then we get to John chapter 3 and verse 14 and this Memorable, memorable illustration. And, John says, or Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
wow, this is a wild picture in the Old Testament that now is, is, is given as an illustration of the gospel. Um, I remember just some months ago, some, last year, um, considering this passage as my daughter Bella was reading through this passage because it was her memory passage for Awana. And she kept going over and over again. When Moses lifted up the serpent, when Moses lifted up, and when Moses lifted up the serpent, you know, I, I, at the point when I was listening to it, I just I, it struck me, and so I wanted to look at the background and the history because I wasn't thinking about it that clearly. And goodness gracious, this is craziness! If she only knew, she wouldn't even sleep at night. How scary this this picture is, right? Uh, you've got people bit by these snakes on steroids, writhing around in pain on the ground, dead on the floor. Many of them dead, some of them dying. There's this bronze snake that's lifted up. They look at it, and then, then they're saved. And then here's our gospel illustration for us right before John 3, 16, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. I wonder if Billy Graham ever uh, used this text. You know, John 3, 16 is a clear one. Could you imagine uh, that picture, right? He probably has. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he did. But it's not necessarily what's so familiar with us, this John 3, 16 thing. Can, can you imagine? This is right before this famous passage in John 3, 16. And that leads us here to the reason of Christmas and John 3, 16. So after all that, here we are in John 3, 16, and we read... The reason of Christmas, the reason for Christmas, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the reason for Christmas. God sent his son. The reason God sent his son, the sending of his son is Christmas. It's the incarnation, right? The father sending the son. The reason the father sent the son, why is it? It's because the father so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the reason for Christmas. He loved so that he sent them to the world. It's what we celebrate on Christmas, the birth of Christ, Jesus born in Bethlehem, baby, raised up, lived a perfect life, and then died a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. The text even tells us that it's those who are perishing here in this passage, right? Believes in him. If you believe in him, you shall not perish, but have eternal life like those People dying and writhing in pain in the wilderness in the Old Testament that we read of, we too are born in sin and dead in our transgressions and sin. And if we look upon the Son, we can be healed from this. We can be given spiritual life. Do you see the connection, the parallel? The reason for Christmas is because the Father sent the Son because he loved. He loved, and that through belief in him, it's through belief in the Son, people are saved not by their good works or initiatives, but by looking at the Son, lifted up, that we might be saved by believing in him so that we might not perish. Now, perish doesn't mean just die and just dead. And Perish is referring to the fact that all mankind is born in a kind of situation in which they, from their very birth, are set on a trajectory because of their 
enmity towards God because of their sin, because of the situation that they're guilty. We're all guilty from the start. And perishing is referring to this fact that we are all on our way to hell. If you're a Christian, you're no longer on your way to hell because you've looked on the sun and you've believed. But if you're not a Christian, you are perishing, you're on your way to hell. And if you're a Christian, you were once in the past perishing because you weren't born saved, were you? No, you were perishing and then God saved you through the sun. Now, in case you think I was going to skirt around this issue, you might be wondering, okay, just to get a little deeper here, what is indicated by God's love of the world here in this passage? Many Christians have discussed this whole thing. What is his love for the world? What does that look like? How do I understand that? And many people have, have, have based their whole uh, ministry around like this one verse in a way that sometimes Sometimes, sadly, takes for granted some other revelation and the bigger picture. But what does Jesus mean by the word world here in this passage? Well, it's clearly not talking about just the created earth, right, of plants or animals or rocks and such. Why do I say that? Because I don't know about you, but you may have little dogs and cats and animals and great backyard, but I don't think any of them are believing in the gospel, um, God loved the world so that those who believe, it's, it's believing one. So, so we have to understand here um, that, 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 that the world here is, is not talking about you know, the plants and animals or rocks and such like that because this is talking about a kind of salvific intent, right? He loved, so he sent, right? So that the world might be saved, it says even in verse 17. So it can't be talking about that. Well, what is it talking about, right? Well, it's clearly talking about human beings, talking about humanity, fallen, sinful humanity. It's what it's talking about because only fallen, sinful humanity have the ability to believe. That is what is in mind here. And humanity is not at all lovable like I had mentioned. We're born sin and perishing. They're not. Why did he love? Well, that's the point of the gospel. God sent his son who is majestic and glorious and perfect and sinless and lovely to those who are sinful and wicked and dead and and undeserving, right? To die for sinners undeserving. It's talking about fallen sinners here, but let's go a little deeper even more into this discussion. Many say that this verse in particular reveals God's universal love and intent, intention, desire to save the whole entire world of created humanity, whoever lived past, present, and future. That would include people who are in hell right now or at the time of Christ and people who don't love Jesus or believe in Jesus. But if we look at this text, it just, it, it just cannot be the case that that is what is being indicated here. Why? Because not all of humanity are, in fact, saved. We see in this very text that people are rejecting Jesus. Some people are believing in Jesus, but people are not believing in Jesus as well. If verse 17 says that God did not send his world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, the world might be saved through him, but we know that there are certain fallen people that are not saved, we've got to consider what in the world is being communicated here in this passage. 
It says here that the world would be saved through him. If Jesus, let me tell you, died on behalf of all humanity, people in hell, people in heaven, past, past, present, and future, then let me tell you, church, all humanity would, in fact, be forgiven for their sins, and they would believe the gospel, and they'd be saved. The very nature of what happened in Christ's death The very nature of it, what he did when he died was to secure salvation for everyone it was made for. And the nature of God and his omnipotence, right? Fancy theological word means that God is all powerful. If God is all powerful and he intended to save, he's going to save. It's such that if he intends to save, all those who he intends to save will be saved. If we say anything else, then we're not talking about God anymore. We're not talking about God anymore. If God intends to save someone who just doesn't get saved and they're eternally damned, then is he God? Can he, is he God? The world then in John 3, 16, I believe, though this is heavily debated amongst good and godly Christians, I believe is, is communicating not just as universal, everybody, no matter what, in hell and heaven. No, it's talking about that, that you know what? Jesus' intent, God's intent, his plan, it goes beyond just the intent to, to save the people of God and Israel, uh, the Jewish people. Um, and, and Nicodemus here hearing this would be like, okay, for God so loved Israel is what he was explaining. He's planning to hear that. For, you're going to say, for God so loved. Okay, yeah, you loved his people, right? He loved the people of God, right? Not the Gentiles. He didn't love the, he loved the people of God. That's what Nicodemus is, is thinking here. But he says, for God so loved the world. Not just limited only to the Old Testament people of God. This is both Jews and Gentiles. And he chose to save Jews and Gentiles, people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, as Revelation 5.9 says. What is Revelation 5.9? You could jot this down in your notes. Revelation 5.9 says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. The point in what's being communicated in John 3 is that he would save the world. And what is being communicated on John 3, 17 actually says he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through him. He's going to say that the world's going to be saved through him. He saves people from every tribe, tongue, nations, people with different ethnicities and backgrounds and social status. He saves people from the nations. This is the reason God the Father sent his son so that he would save his people. That is the reason for Christmas, to save undeserving sinners like you and me. All of the world, every last one of them, every last person is undeserved. If you're a Christian here and you're a believing one, you're an undeserved recipient of God's grace. You don't deserve his grace. You don't deserve his mercy. So that the fact that God would save anyone out of the nations is amazing. And he saves many. There are Christians being saved today this very morning. Even this morning in different time zones, this whole, you know, in the last 10, 50, through the preaching of the world, word, people are being saved and he's gracious, he's saving the world. Praise God for that. Christmas is the sending of the sun and it was due to his love. And if you're a believer here this morning, you can be assured, you can take it to the bank that God loves you so much that he would send his only son to be born, to live and to die 
for you so that you will not perish as this passage explains. You will not go to hell for eternity so that you might not suffer for your sins. You should have, you would have, but you're not going to because of what Jesus did. You might have eternal life by believing in the Son. And if you believe this morning, thank God for your salvation. Now, you'd think that a glorious message like this would be so wonderful to everyone, wouldn't it? But it's not. This brings us to our next point and the offense of Christmas. Look with me at John chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Not everyone is happy about Jesus this Christmas season. It's not a holy, jolly Christmas for everyone this season. Some rejoice in him, but some shake their fists at him. There were people during the time of Jesus, even people in Nicodemus' tribe, the Pharisees, who hated everything about Jesus. Ironically enough, many of them, these, these Pharisees, they were the religious elite of the day. The people you would most associate with religion and religiosity and holiness and goodness, they're the very ones who rejected and hated Jesus so much within this context, right? Jesus is talking about them, right? The whole world, right? Everyone in, in opposition to him, but he's talking also about the Pharisees, right? They're not... The, the, And why? It's because of their sins and they're in the dark. They don't love the light. They don't love Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Not everybody loves Jesus. Now, today there are certainly many who fall into this kind of category, like a Pharisee type, but there are also many other categories um, who when they, uh, they, they just do not look on Jesus with love and admiration. They just don't. But, but even actually with disgust and hatred. The text actually says that, that they hate the light. Who's the light? Jesus is the light. Why do we see so much hatred of the light? Because they hate the light, because their works are evil. Why is it? Because verse 19 tells us specifically, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. These evildoers did not love the light. These enslaved, wicked people, even the Pharisees, these religious type, even, they do not want to be interrupted in their wicked ways. They don't think they're in their wicked ways, but Jesus sees it. Jesus sees it for them, and he sees it for everybody. This is true whether you're living in open right now, if you're living in open and blatant kind of hedonism and seeking this wild party life and clear disobedience of God's word, like you're just doing something that's so obviously against God's word. And it's also true if you're kind of a moral upstanding Pharisee type who has envisioned following your own way, like a work salvation and such, but 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 reject Jesus. In both of those situations, it's the same. You don't love Jesus. In fact, this text reveals that it's not just an indifference, it's, it's, it's a hatred of Jesus. You are, by very nature, if you're in this category of someone who doesn't love Jesus, 
and your very nature of your being addicted to evil and to the darkness and your pursuits of evil deeds, you, what you're doing is that that's part of who you are. You're evidencing that you don't want anything to do with Jesus. And the idea of Christmas is even an f- offense, an offense to the greatest kind to you. And we all know many people who are so offended by the gospel and everything that has to do with Jesus and the exclusivity of the message that they want nothing to do with them. The gospel, Jesus, Christmas, it's polarizing, right? On the one hand, you have people loving Christ and the light. But at the same time, on the other hand, you have people hating Christ because of the very same light. Some are drawn to the light for the sake of the lightness, lightness of the light. Jesus, the light, the light. They are drawn to him. But then other people are offended and repelled by this very same light that everybody else is worshiping. It's polarizing. Christmas is polarizing. Unbelievers would rather pursue their wickedness in the dark and not be exposed by the light. The light comes and it exposes the wickedness. So that is why so many people hate Christ, hate the gospel, hate Christmas. I remember prior to my conversion being annoyed by spiritual people and spiritual things. Prayer meetings were the worst. Since you can't hide a false profession of faith during prayer meetings, right? Also, I just remember being very annoyed by people in their praying. Now... I had a profession of faith, I did, I grew up in a Christian home, but I did not have spiritual life. So things like prayer made me uncomfortable. Also, I regularly found myself being drawn towards all types of evil, while at the same time be pretending to love God. I mean, I went to church, and, or that youth group, that is, and, and just youth group and, and never anything else, and, then, and, 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 and I was a church kid, so I liked Jesus, right? I like Jesus. I was a church kid. Wrong. Wrong. Sure, I like my version of Jesus that I sculpted into an imaginary idol of my life. But a Jesus, this Jesus was someone who made zero claims on my life for obedience. And a Jesus who did not bother me in my dabbling in pursuits of darkness and evil. I hid from the true Jesus, substituted a fake Jesus. However, right as we see here in the text, the Jesus of the Bible is the light that shines into the darkness. And like a flip of a switch and the cockroaches go scurrying, have you ever seen that? Those who were slaves to darkness and sin, who all of a sudden the light came into the world, all scurried away, wanted nothing to do with Jesus, even killing Jesus. Well, I want to know what evidence of why the Pharisees and the religious leaders hated Jesus? Well, by the fact that they wanted him dead, maybe. Like, hello, like, that's pretty evident. They hated the light. They sought to kill the light. And those of you right now who are unbelieving here, maybe, maybe you're not a believer here in this room. In reality, you also don't want anything to do with the Jesus of the Bible. And if you get a glimpse of him, maybe if you're getting a glimpse of him in this sermon, it might offend you to no end. <laughs> Just think of our culture today. Everything is in the eye of the beholder. If it's good for you, that's just great. Who are you to judge, they might say. Santa, 
flying reindeer and silly Christmas movies aren't going to offend anyone. But the light will. That's what the passage reveals to us. And some people hate the light. It means they hate Jesus. And they hate what Christmas stands for. Let's make this even more practical for us right now. What is your response to the light this morning? Do you pay lip service to liking the light? Or do you actually love and run to the light of Christ? There's a difference between light lovers and light haters, but surprisingly, it's not always very obvious of the difference in some situations. Kind of like Nicodemus' associates and the Pharisees, right? Who would have seen very religious and moral and God-loving. And they would even thought themselves to, do, to be the same. But Jesus calls their bluff and says, no, even these religious, moral people, law keepers, even they are secret dark lovers, evildoers and Christ haters. And that is undeniably, obviously, like I said, evidenced by the fact that they sought to put Jesus to death. They hated the light of Christ. Do you? They were moral fakers. Are you? They said they loved God, but hated him and hated his son. They were perishing and on their way to hell, and they didn't even know it. Are you? Let me give you a little test. If you love Jesus and all that he taught, all that he taught and did and stood for, then you are a believer and you love the light. But if the claims of Christ and the spiritual things in your heart of hearts makes you uncomfortable then you are a perishing enemy of Christ and stand right now condemned in your sin. The passage says that. They're already condemned because they have not believed in the Son. The fact that they hate the light is evidence that they are condemned. Some love Christ and the true uh, significance of Christmas, but others hate him. And that everything that's involved in Christmas, right? Christmas is polarizing. Can you see that now? Well, now that we've considered the reason for Christmas and that, and, that, and, that, and that everything that God the Father did in sending his son, and we've also looked at the offense of Christmas, let's, let's conclude here with the, uh, considering the difference between the people who are offended and, and light haters and then those who love the light. What's the difference? What is the difference? That leads us to our last point, the result of Christmas. In verse 21, look with me. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Some hate the light. However, some are drawn to the light. They're drawn to Jesus. Who are these ones drawn to Jesus? It says whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People who are coming to Jesus. These are believers. These are Christians. This is you or me if you're a believer here today. If you're drawn to the light, that's who's in view here in verse 21. But not all people are Christians, right? Does anybody think all people are Christians? Right? We got that clear. There are light haters, right? As this, this text reveals. But what makes the difference between these two? Catch this, this is important. What makes the difference between them? 
Is it because the believer maybe was smarter? Or something inside them that made them better? Or does it have to do with something outside of them? Something influencing them? What is it? And who are these light lovers anyways? I mean, if everyone is born in sin, who would ever be attracted to the light? The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Have you ever seen a dead person being attracted to anything? They're dead. That's what the Bible tells us that we were. Oh, okay, so earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, like I had mentioned earlier, this famous born-again language. What he's speaking about is the mystery of the new birth, the regeneration. Jesus says, kind of in conclusion to his discussion of being born again, in John chapter 3 and verse 8, right before our text, he says that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, wind goes around kind of random, right? His point is not that the Spirit just goes around random, but the wind goes where it wills, right? And in the same way, it's not a mysterious thing. You, just, you know, even the, the weather people try to figure it out and, and map it out, but they're always wrong, right? If in California, you don't listen and think about weather people, but when, if you lived in other, other uh, states or other places in the world, you care about what the weather people are saying, but even when you listen to what the weather people are saying, they're oftentimes regularly wrong. The wind goes where it wills. Same way, the spirit goes where he wills. It's this mysterious thing. Those who are born again and who are lovers of Christ are mysteriously brought into the kingdom of God like the wind blowing to and fro. They're given spiritual life. Why do I believe but my brother or sister or mom or dad doesn't? Why did the message capture and change my heart that morning when I heard the gospel? But the person next to me was sitting there with glazed eyes. Hello. (laughs) The spirit of God transforms who he wills. That's what it says here. And further, even earlier in our book, in John chapter 1, we see that the ones who are attracted to the light, that come to the light, are the ones that God gives life. Look with me at John chapter 1 and verses 19 through 13. I mean, sorry, 9 through 13. 1, verse 9 through 13. John chapter 1. Same book, same author, same themes even. You'll hear the same themes. It's all talking about same kind of stuff. Verse 9. The true life, light, which enlightens everyone, has come into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, talking about the the Jewish people, right? His own. And his own people did not receive him, right? What did they do instead? They sought to kill him. And they ended up being instrumental in his murder, right? On the cross. Crucify him, they, they called. His own people didn't receive him. Verse 12. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name... Talking about believers, Christians, right? He gave them the right to become children of God who were born, this is what it says, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They were born not by their own will. If you've had children, that child had nothing to do with his or her birth. I've had five of them. Not one of them asked me before, can I be born, dad? 
not their will, not their desire, but born of God. Born of God. Can't you see? God's work is the difference here in these people's lives. Not our initiative or our goodness or our even uninfluenced free will. It's not even that. That is the result. This is the result of Christmas. This is what happens. This is what Christmas does. It draws people to the light. People are transformed by his son. God pursues. He gives life. He regenerates. He transforms who he wills. They, then they come to him. Let's look at John chapter 6. Same book, same author, same themes. John chapter 6 for more evidence of this. John chapter 6, turn over a few, few uh, pages. Jot these verses down. John chapter 6 and verse 37. What does John 6, 37 say? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All of them. And then look down at verse 44. What does verse 44 say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Who could come to Jesus? Who are the light lovers? Who are the ones following after him? Who are the ones loving the light and turning from the evil and dark? Well, nobody can come unless the Father draws. And then all the Father draws will be raised up at the last day. Whose initiative? God's initiative. Lastly, verse 65 of John chapter 6 as another way of reminder. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's a gift. It's granted by the Father. It's not our initiative, our goodness. It's not because we're raised in a good Christian family and we've always just been moral people. No, it's not any of that. You were born in sin. I don't care who you are. And let me assure you, if you were left to yourself, none of us would have come to Jesus on our own. Because of our fallen will, we would have never come to him. We would have wanted to be in the dark. We would have sought evil. We would be running so far away from the light if it were not for God giving us spiritual life, causing us to be born again and sending his son to die for us and for our salvation, his death even secured your life. He didn't die for everybody else. He died for those who are believing. He died to secure your salvation. It's a personal. It's not just general. It's not just out there. It's not just, oh, just anyone come on. It is come one, come all, because if anyone believes, they will be saved. I don't care. If someone's believing, that means that God is calling them and wooing them and saving them, and he does that from people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and he's done it for you if you're a believer. You see how personal that is? You see how good that is? That is the result of Christmas, the sending of a son. The only reason you care about the light is because of God's initiative. And we see it. I'm not just going to all these other passages. We see it right here in our text in verse 21. What does the passage say? John 3 and 21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. His works have been carried out in God. By God, through God. That's what John 3, 16 through 21 teaches us. The ones coming to the light are 
doing so to draw attention to the great work of God in their life. The ones believing, the whosoever will in this passage in John 3, 16, are the ones that it can be clearly seen that God is doing a great work in them. Verse 21 says that. That's glorious. Can you see why I can't take the word world here to be referring to every person, past, present, future, people in hell and people going to hell? No, that, that means that the death of Christ didn't do anything. If that's the case, no. The death of Christ secures his people. That makes his people worship him all the more. This salvific love is not some general thing out there to appeal. No, it's personal. He loved you and died for you over 2,000 years ago if you are a believer here this morning. For us, for our salvations, for our specific sins, for our thoughts, our evil, wicked deeds. He actually did something to pay for those things as your substitute. That is the good news of the gospel and of Christmas. And if you're a Christian here this morning, your life and your love for Jesus and even all your good deeds, right, doing the truth in this text, will and should point others to the miraculous work of God in your life. It brings God the glory, doesn't it? If your salvation was initiated, initiated and created by you and your goodness and your free will and how wonderful little Sally or Tommy or whoever, sorry if th- those are your names, not personal here, if it was all about us, who would get the glory in that? Who? We would get the glory in that. But if it was initiated by God and his choosing and his drawing and Christ's dying, then who gets the glory in that? God gets the glory in that. If we emphasize our goodness or our wise choices when we're telling our testimonies uh, and all these things, right, um, we're getting it all wrong. We will completely miss the good news of the gospel, and we will miss the point and the reason for Christmas, the result of Christmas, and that is that Christ was born and brought into the world to live and to die to save sinners like you and me, and the untold multitude who have yet to believe from every tribe, tongue, nation, and and people. He will save the world. That's the result of Christmas. That's the light has come into the world to save sinners, and it's happening right now. It's happening even today. So if you're a Christian here, thank God. Thank God for his mercy and grace in your life. You didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you. You were transformed and you're light lovers today. You're attracted to him today to be a clear witness to God's unmistakable work in your life. It is evident if you're a believer that God has done something to you or else none of you would be Christians. I see miracles all over this place. Those of you who I know are believers, miracles of God's workmanship. And if that is true to you, we ought to, all of us, every last one of us, shine the light on what God is doing and has done in your life this Christmas season. But if you are one of the ones who hate the light this morning, whether you are blatantly opposed and really obvious, or you are secretly lovers of evil like the Pharisees, then your condemnation, this passage tells us, your condemnation and judgment is shown By your very love for the dark and pursuit of evil during this season and throughout your whole 
life. It's revealed in this text. And it's evident right now, and the verdict is in, you are perishing and on your way to hell. But oh, let me assure you all this morning, every light hater is a potential light lover. And depending on what God may even be doing right now in your life, you may find yourself being drawn to the great Christmas message, the gospel message even, of God the Father sending his son into the world for sinners. And if that's you here this morning, repent now for your sins and your love for the dark and run to this great Jesus who is the only salvation to those who are perishing. Lift it up. Lift it up like that bronze snake that if you look to Jesus, you might be saved from your sins. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for what you've revealed in the Bible. We thank you for initiating initiating through your love, through your work, through all your actions, by giving us life, oh, by changing our hearts, God, by drawing us, by calling us, by sending, Father, sending your Son to actually secure our salvation. We're thankful for all of it. Oh, Father, thank you during this season and all year long for what you've done in sending your son to the world. Father, I pray for those in this room who do not know this to be true for themselves. I pray that you might save them from their sins. I pray that you would make them light lovers and transform these light haters to now loving the gospel. We pray for these, we pray for these things. In Christ's name, amen.